This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we explore how public land agencies are using seed collections from native plants to restore ecosystems. It's a good show. Stay with us. The best part about being a scientist is that every day I wake up and I get to ask questions that uh, nobody knows the answers to yet. And the fulfilling feeling of contributing to the human pool of knowledge makes science to me the coolest thing in the world. Today on Science Moab, we're talking to Dr. Daniel Winkler about efforts to restore public lands using native seeds. Dr. Winkler is a research ecologist and co-science lead for the Colorado Plateau Native Plant Program. There, he works with Seeds of Success, a national native seed collection program led by the Bureau of Land Management. We talk with him about the state of native plants on the Colorado Plateau, and how efforts like Seeds of Success are combining land management agencies, research, nonprofits, and volunteers to collect and restore native seeds out in the landscape. We begin our interview with Dr. Winkler explaining the diversity of native plants that exist on the Colorado Plateau. There are some estimates that we have one of the highest rates of endemism, so plants that are only found on the Colorado Plateau and nowhere else. Uh, there are some estimates that we have some of the highest rates in the United States, you know, close second to places like California, where 30% of their flora is native and endemic to only California. For the Colorado Plateau, I think it's maybe 15% of the species here are native to the Colorado Plateau, endemic to the Colorado Plateau, and as a result, found nowhere else. Why? Why does the plateau have such high levels of endemism? Well, um, as your listen, a lot of your listeners probably know, the Colorado Plateau exists in this interesting climate space between the coastal California uh, and the weather that that creates across the Great Basin. Um, and then uh, to our east, we have the Rocky Mountains, which also creates this, this interesting pocket that the Colorado Plateau exists in. So the species that are native to the plateau um, have evolved over thousands of years to deal with these very unique environmental factors that allow them to persist here and would explain why if we tried bringing a plant from somewhere else, it would be quite challenging for a plant to thrive if it didn't naturally occur here. Can you characterize the state of our native species? How are they doing? There are a lot of unknowns, which is why a lot of people are investing time and research dollars into studying native plants to figure out as much as we can, uh, particularly with things like climate change and forecasts predicting that the Colorado Plateau will become hotter and drier in future years. That has a lot of significant implications for the native plant species here. But one of the big things that motivates me in the work that I do is the need for restoration of 
lands on the Colorado Plateau that have already been degraded from years of grazing, mineral extraction, and various other human activities that have influenced the native plant communities that we would have seen before all of that grazing occurred compared to what we see today, which includes a number of invasive species that are well established in the communities and in some cases could be considered themselves as natives, though that's a controversial statement. You mentioned climate change, but are there other current threats to native plant diversity and abundance? Absolutely. One of the the main missions of the federal government these days is to achieve American energy independence. Um, And that comes with harvesting and extracting resources from American public lands that will allow us to be more energy independent and not dependent upon the rest of the world for our energy needs, including resources like uranium, coal, natural gas, So on the Colorado Plateau, there are a number of human impacts that are currently ongoing and will be ongoing for generations to come. Those include the oil and gas industry. Grazing on the Colorado Plateau is still something that has serious impacts on the native plant communities we care about. And then there are also other things on the Colorado Plateau like recreational tourism and what active outdoorsmen like you and me might do just by going out into our national parks. And although we're encouraged to stay on trails, uh, those trails themselves have impacts on the native plant community. So every human is involved in it so long as we're living on the Colorado Plateau. How are programs like Seeds of Success working to restore the native plant communities of the Colorado Plateau? There's been quite a bit of research over the years that shows that local is better. And this applies to a lot of sustainable green movements that go beyond the plant world. So scientists have identified that local plants tend to do better when you're trying to restore a given area. Um, And it could be a small patch of land, a small side of the highway, um, or it could be at the level of an entire landscape, or potentially, hopefully one day, the entire Colorado Plateau. So we know that the plants that currently grow in an area where we want to restore, actively restore that area to native habitat after, say, it's been degraded by an oil pad or something like that, we know that the best plants to try to restore that area with are the plants that occurred there before or occur on the periphery of the damaged area. So there's been a big push to identify native plant seed sources, harvest those, grow them out so we have enough for large-scale restoration, then actively restore degraded areas with the plant materials that are closest to that site. And so when you say closest and and source areas, um, what does that mean on the ground? So the the national parks are a great example of seed sourcing. They have a policy that says any restoration that occurs within a national park can only be done with native plant materials that have been sourced from that park. So anything outside of the boundaries is off limits. They, They won't do it. And that's tied with the evidence that local is best. It's also one of the reasons why the national parks have higher than average success rates in in restoring native plant communities. 
For example, here in Moab, if the BLM is working on a restoration project, say in the Sand Flats recreation area, uh, they might identify some native plants that they want to restore a site with, and then they'll identify potentially sites within the Moab region. It doesn't necessarily need to be within Sand Flats, where they would find native plant seeds bring those to the sand flat area with the idea that because they've been collected within a certain distance and potentially in the same environment as they'll go to, that they will be successful. And so someone's literally going out there and waiting for these plants that are growing in the wild to seed, and then they're collecting those seeds. Yes. This is a great plug for the Bureau of Land Management Seeds of Success program. So for the past 10, 15 years, the Seeds of Success program has interns all across the Western United States, including here in Moab, that every growing season identify plant populations where they will collect seeds from, and they'll track them throughout the season until they know that the seeds are ready to be harvested. And in most cases, they will take no more than necessary so they don't harm the populations that they're collecting from. And then those seeds are sent to a seed cleaning facility, and then they are stored usually in refrigeration units until they're needed for restoration projects. We are actively collecting across a gradient of sites um, for river restoration projects to salt desert restoration projects up into the pinyon juniper forests. That's so cool. Yeah. How do they know that they are taking an amount that's not going to harm the native plant communities that are growing in the wild? Usually when a Seeds of Success crew goes out to a site, there are some guidelines that say you're not allowed to collect more than 5 to 10% of the plant community that you're observing. So you go to a site, you identify, okay, there are about 100 plants here. So you would restrict yourself to only 5 to 10% of those plants and collect seeds from those, leaving the rest for nature to do its thing. And are these kind of all the plant species that we see around us, or are there certain species that are chosen more regularly to collect seeds from? The, the BLM has a target species list that changes from year to year most of the time based on not only what's, what seeds are available, currently available on the market, but also plant species that have been identified by land managers and researchers as potential ideal species to grow either for grazing forage or for restoring native plant communities for conservation issues. There's a, a specific list of target plants that are collected every year, depending on the region of the Colorado Plateau you're in. So the idea of local goes even finer scale than just the Colorado Plateau. So the Moab field office for the BLM is collecting a particular set of species, whereas the vernal field office for the BLM is collecting a slightly different set of species based on the, the habitats that they're trying to restore. Can you explain, once the seeds are collected, what's the process of using them in the restoration? Yeah, it depends on the restoration project, how the seeds are used. So they're collected by interns or field crews. The seeds are sent to a cleaning facility, and then they often end up in storage for a 
period of time until they're called on. And then those seeds could be scattered across an oil pad. They could be drilled into the soil. Uh, they could be grown in a greenhouse and then transplanted for highway restoration projects. Yeah, there are a, a wide variety of techniques that restoration ecologists use to get seeds into the ground. And we're still learning a lot about those, especially on the Colorado Plateau, where the biological soil crust that we're trying to maintain um, wouldn't necessarily like us to go out and drill a bunch of seeds into them. Um, so there are kind of management ideas for each community and each type of restoration project with how those seeds end up in the ground. And so you said that this is a BLM program, the Seeds of Success specifically, but does the Forest Service um, have a similar thing that you know of? So I'm part of the Colorado Plateau Native Plant Program, but there are native plant programs all across the U.S., um, and it changes from region to region which uh, federal agency is, is running them. So here the BLM is running the native plant program. Uh, in the Great Basin, the Forest Service is running the program. Um, so it, it varies, and with that, the seeds of success are often nested in the native plant program. So here the BLM runs it. Uh, but the Forest Service might run it elsewhere. Does what you're running get material that then the Forest Service uses? Potentially, yes. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so um, the seeds that are collected here on the Colorado Plateau might end up in places where you wouldn't expect them to. Um, so there are some cases where restoration projects are going away from the local as best and just taking advantage of as much seed as they can get. Um, so I know that some of the seeds on the Colorado Plateau have ended up in states that are far away from here. Um, and there are some people who are, are, are actively tracking when, once we collect seeds, where do they end up? Um, and I think for the Colorado Plateau, they've ended up in all 50 states. But it might be that they're going to states where you wouldn't expect it for greenhouse experiments or growing operations that the government is contracting, which will eventually bring those seeds back here once some facility has grown them for us. One other cool thing that makes the Colorado Plateau Native Plant Program and other programs like it so awesome um, are just the number of people, organizations, um, and various land managers and stakeholders that are involved in it. It's not just the USGS. It's not just BLM. It's it's actually the oil and gas industry. It's the Forest Service. It's nonprofit partners that are actively collecting the seeds for us on a volunteer basis. It's educational institutions like Four Corner School um, that are using seed, collecting seed, and educating their students with the information that they get from being out in the field collecting seed. There's also for-profit agencies that are creating jobs and making money off of helping the, the native plant cause. So there are a tremendous number of people that are involved in what makes the native plant program successful. You mentioned a threat to native plant populations um, was climate change. This area is expected to get hotter and drier in the coming decades. Is there any 
talk about whether local material really is the best material or is there any consideration of the fact that it's going to get hotter and drier and we're restoring with species that might actually be maladapted to a future climate? We're definitely considering the idea that local might not always be better. So there's a caveat to the local is best. The caveat being climate change might not make what's currently local, local anymore in future scenarios. There are some researchers who are promoting the idea of assisted migration, uh, which is something that's been talked about in the media a lot. And there's another idea that a few researchers at Northern Arizona University are supporting called priestoration, where you're identifying species to restore a future area before that area needs to be restored. Um, which is similar to assisted migration. So the idea that Moab might become hotter and drier might mean that we need to start potentially identifying seed sources in areas that are currently hot and drier, um, maybe the same species, and then choosing a subset of those populations that we think would be best adapted to a hotter and drier future. So still potentially maintaining the same plant communities we see today, but with more resilient genetics that will allow them to survive and thrive in future climates. You mentioned genetic work. Are plant molecular genetics being considered when collecting seeds for restoration? Yes, molecular genetic work is one of the most important aspects of the native plant program today, with the idea that we really need to know what the genetic structure of populations is before we go and collect seeds from them. So we could potentially say that within the Moab region, if we collected seeds from, say, near town and then up on the rim somewhere, if we collected the same species but, you know, different, different groups of seeds and did genetic work, we can sometimes find that those are genetically distinct populations, um, even on that small scale. So the ones that are growing on the rim might not necessarily be adapted to grow down in the valley. Um, There's that kind of variation on that small of a scale? Sometimes, in some scenarios. Most of the time it's regional or it might follow an environmental gradient. So uh, the warmer regions of the Colorado Plateau might be genetically distinct from the colder, higher elevation regions. Um, So there are geneticists in Flagstaff that are actively looking at the genomes of the native plant material that we're collecting with the idea that there's there's important knowledge and information there that will inform future collections. And so presumably they're trying to figure out these genetic patterns and mapping them out and then and then figuring out where they should be collecting things for future restoration projects is what you're saying. Exactly. When you think about trying to restore a plant community, especially in an area that's like a large area that you're trying to restore too, like do you have to consider if things are too closely related? It's something that the geneticists are looking at right now. Um, So if you bring two subspecies of sagebrush together that haven't reproduce together in thousands of years, you could potentially create weird reproductive issues that might not make those populations sustainable. The same could be said for taking only one small subset of a population and growing that, and then growing that, and then growing that. 
where eventually you build up enough mutations that they could negatively impact populations. Do we have any estimates of the amount of genetic diversity that are existing within some of these species on the Colorado Plateau? Some of them, it's huge. So there are some grass species that have amazing amounts of genetic diversity across their range on the Colorado Plateau alone. So within that, we could potentially select multiple populations for whatever climate scenario might might occur in the future. So the warmer, drier populations, we could find those based on their genetics. The the populations that'll be best if we get a warmer but slightly wetter monsoonal season or something like that, uh, we could identify those populations as well. So there's this grab bag of information that comes with identifying the genetic structure of the plants we're working with. Having genetic diversity within a population or across populations might mean that individual plants that we put into a restoration project might be better at dealing with water stress or might not need as much water to get the plants established, or in some cases might be more resistant to herbivory if herbivores show up and insects start chomping on their leaves, but we don't want them to at a certain period of their lives. More applied is there might be certain populations that provide better, higher quality plant material for cows to graze on. Uh, so that's that's also an important part of restoring the landscape is which species are we putting out there? And then within those species, what value are they going to be to the humans that might depend on them? So because your background is in invasive plants, um, how do restoration efforts cope with the fact that you know, there are a lot of these non-native invasive species that are likely going to try to invade a, a recently restored area. There are some great things about the field of invasion biology that are essentially helping restoration ecologists um, get closer to identifying how native plants work and compete against invasive plants that are trying to steal their habitat. Uh, So we've learned that there are effective ways to control invasive species, but also prevent them from entering a community by sometimes using native plants themselves. So a lot of native perennial shrub species that live for many, many years facilitate other native plants by allowing them to grow underneath them. Um, And this is often a difficult thing for invasive plants to do because they would be competing with you know, the roots of the native shrubs, um, whereas the native plants have evolved in a way to not necessarily interfere with what the shrubs are trying to do, but take advantage of the little microclimates that the shrubs provide them with. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so how does that then get applied in the field setting? The idea, although it's rarely applied, it's still something researchers are exploring, The idea would be to potentially start your restoration program in a slightly different way by perhaps growing a certain subset of species first and then introducing the other native species that you really want to take over the site. And that essentially preps the site for what is to come in the restoration project and makes it more resistant to potential invasion. I'm interested what 
first got you interested in ecology and plants and invasion and all of the cool things that you study? I started my career as a biological anthropologist, thinking that I was going to become the next Jane Goodall and go live with chimpanzees in Africa. <laughs> um, and there was, right after my undergraduate degree, um, so I was born and raised in New York, and I never left New York until after college. Um, so I was a city kid, born and raised, and I thought it was the greatest place in the world, so why would you ever want to leave? Um, little did I know that there was this amazing thing called nature. Um, and although New York has its own form of nature, it wasn't until after college I got a fellowship to study burying beetles at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory in Colorado um, that my mind was opened up to the world, the, the plant world and the natural world beyond the cities and towns we live in. Um, I fell in love with the mountains, I fell in love with the Rockies, and most importantly, I fell in love with plants. Um, and I thought, if anything, compared to p chimpanzees and burying beetles, plants are pretty cool to study, because mostly because they don't move. So they're, they're slightly easier to study, and they're a good excuse to get you to go to beautiful, stunning places um, and figure out what makes those plants so adapted and so in tuned with the the beautiful, amazing, and often wild environments that you find them in. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? The best part about being a scientist is that every day I wake up and I get to ask questions that potentially we don't know the answers to yet. Uh, nobody knows the answers to yet. Um, and the, the fulfilling feeling of contributing to the human pool of knowledge makes science to me the coolest thing in the world. That's so awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and for this interview. It's been really cool to hear about all of this awesome native plant work that's going on here in the Colorado Plateau. Thank you so much. You can listen again to Science Moab on kzmu.org or by downloading the Science Moab podcast on iTunes. The music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.